Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. Today's episode is a recording of a readings event held online via Zoom during the COVID-19 crisis. This event saw readings bookseller Donata Carazza in conversation with publisher and author Donna Ward about Donna's new book, Living in Solitude. A warning, as this is a live internet recording, there has been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. Here's Donata. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. So the um, I'll start by giving you a bit of background on Donna. Um, Donna is a publisher at Inkerman and Blunt. Donna was also the founder of Indigo, a Western Australian journal of writing. Amongst her past jobs, uh, she's been a psychologist and a social worker, amongst many other things. And uh, I know from reading her book that she's um, she's travelled uh, near and far, and she is also, of course, an avid reader. the The book that we're going to be talking about tonight, she I dare not name, a spinster's meditations on life. Uh, is is profoundly important, I think, for me in my life right now because it's given me an insight into the single person's life. But it's also made me understand that there were biases at play when I might have been talking to friends who were single. And uh, I, the book is really... a. a um, a collection of essays that looks very seriously at what it is to be a single woman um, who who has what Donna calls herself, who, who has become childless and one of the childless and never married. And it sets that against a world that really values and puts a lot of emphasis on couples and on uh, families. So... For those of us who um, who aren't in this world, and for those of us who are, I think it's it's a very important book for for getting an insight into the world that Donna has inhabited and the way she has um, made it meaningful and purposeful. But she's her observations and her insights are are, are really going to well for me. They were able to, as I say they changed my biases and my and and my understanding of what a life like that would be like and i mean it right now so um donna um we talked yesterday a little bit about prejudice and how it's you described it in your book as a a matrix an intercellular substance weaving in and out of everyone and everything we do you called it an icy word crystal sharp, shot through with inclusions of envy, fear and hatred, forged in an eternity of righteous morality. Kind of <laughs> profound, heavy <laughs> stuff there. Yeah. Just one more, one more paragraph I'd like to read, just to put it in context for everyone. It's a subtle prejudice against a subtle difference. Spinsterhood, bachelorhood, such a first world problem. What easy victims we childless never-marrieds are. 
no need for ghettos, concentration camps or gulags. Um, we are disappeared in plain sight, invisibles, working at our desk, walking the streets, sitting in cafes, taking in entertainments, paying our taxes without family concessions and deductions or tax minimization entities. Invisibles who risk derision if we dare say what it is like to be single. Why is it so hard to talk about it, Donna? Uh, well, it took me a long time to figure out why. So my thoughts are, and again, you know, I've never really asked anyone why they don't want me to speak about it, but my feelings and thoughts about it are that um, single is, uh, let's just say, not say single, because single is such a big conglomerate of a category. Let's just talk about spinster because that's the, the word that really uh, triggers people quite a lot. So if you say that you're a, a woman of a certain age, uh, you know, certainly um, over 40 and you haven't had children and don't look like you're going to, or you're a woman my age and you're 65 and you haven't had children and you tell someone that you've never been in a, a long-term relationship and you've never had children and you don't have grandchildren, it's almost as if you're saying, um, I am death, come to get you. It's uh, such a vacuum. Um, there's no connection. People can't connect with me. Well, they feel that they can't connect with me and have a conversation about things that they know about in life, which is struggles in relationship in families and struggles with raising children and those sorts of things. I, I see some people sort of visibly step back in a way to sort of say, well, how on earth am I ever going to talk with this person? Because mm, there's mm. nothing, there's none of that everydayness. And often I've had to help. Um, and so I'm imagining that that's what it is. There's no way to link. I don't think that they kind of say, oh, my God, I hate you because of that. But right. I do think that there's, um, it, it translates into a prejudice. And I think I was onto it when I was, wrote the first version of this book, which many people know that I wrote um, a version of this book that was a, a kind of pseudo pop, pop sociology kind of terribly boring thing, trying to be um, academic and um, trying to be quite separate from me. I wanted to write about my life without me in it in a way. Um, and when I was doing that, I was looking at a lot of the research into being single and the first thing that I noticed was that um, single is regarded statistically in most studies as everything that's not married and just everything that's not married. So de facto people in early studies were considered single because they weren't officially married in a church. This is particularly true in, in American statistical data on this. Um, so... I, I did do social work and in social work we, we studied a little bit about research methodology and, um, and one of the very first things that I discovered in it in studying sociology is that if you're going to compare and contrast two things, we, we can say this when we say, you know, it's apples and pears, when you compare and contrast two things, you want to have homogeneous groups, groups that look the same yes. so, but different. You know, so you want to say all married people are all families and you want to look at what's non-family. But what's non-family is such a, a variety if you're going to include de facto and some studies even include clergy because they're not married formally. So it seemed to me that there was a very subtle prejudice going on that, that even basic 
research methodology one wasn't being observed in in this group uh, in this particular instance and and it's kind of it's so subtle because the way we collect data both here and in america i didn't really study uk but to the way we collect data over the decades has been according to certain categories and uh, when it comes to marital status the categories have been you know married or not married married or never married um, and then eventually you know in the 70s when everything was changing 60s and 70s they started to have to change this because they were starting to realize that some people had been married and were now divorced um, yeah. It's a, and then and even now it's not really a hundred percent clear. There are in Australia include same sex couples as married and coupled, and they're starting to distinguish between single and what I consider familyed. Um, but it's still very fraught, and yeah, it's got a long way to go. So it's in that way, a very subtle way, and like I could almost be told you know, put up or shut up because it's such a, a minor thing. But when it comes to trying to find stories about my life, and I know I can't be the only person mm. living this life, when it comes to finding stories about my life, it influences the literature. So when you start reading books on singleness, they keep talking about um, single mothers or single parents, uh, divorced people, uh, mainly women. It's nearly always about women. I found three books on men. Um, and I don't think that reflects the number of men that are, have ne may never have married or had children. But so I you basically it, wrote the book that you that you wanted to read. I did. Yeah. <laughs> now I don't want to read it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but I did. I I did. I wanted to write something. Well, I don't know whether I actually sat down and wrote it like that. I, I wanted to write how my life goes because mm. a lot of people here tonight know that I'm so totally self-absorbed <laughs> that I, I really am very interested in how my life goes. And I don't mean self-absorbed in a negative way, but it, it is totally and utterly curious to me what this life is about. Not my life in particular, what being alive is about. Yes. And so, you know, and so I, I wanted to reflect on what my experience of being alive has been about and I couldn't find, I found a few other examples, but I really couldn't find one that was satisfying. Um, and so I just thought, well, I need to write this for myself. And so now it's out in the world for everyone else too. Mm. But I think what your book taps into is that, that, that curiosity and that desire to understand what it is to be human, what it is to be alive, goes beyond just the, uh, the the desire for coupling and having children it it, it goes it's a much broader thing and yeah. there's there was something um it was towards the end of the book and it was uh the little note to brendan where you where you talk about a nine-hour conversation with a dear friend yeah. and you come to the end of that that day and you talk about confluence about this yeah. wonderful connection and engagement of of two people and an experience that I guess is is something that you that you find again and again in in the book that that those experiences are what also um, are definitely what what you hold on to but they're also moments that you realize that you have to move on from certain confluences that don't work <laughs> yes I think you know life's um like 
I think we ride a current. I, I, I write about that, this idea of the river flowing through it and really, you know, it's, it's, it's an old um, Hindu understanding of life, that life is the river and that we are the river and we, the river will take us through life the way, the way it will. And, um, and so I, I was playing with that idea of, of the river. Um, Herman Hess speaks best about it in Siddhartha, mm. of course, um, mm that whole idea of the relationship between life and the river and sitting by the river, observing the river and then being in the river and flowing with it. I wanted to get a grab on that because, um, you know, there I was seeing my life in terms of marital status, obsessed by that for quite a long time, um, when really I was almost going to miss out on life as it is. And while we see life in this, in in terms of marital status and Australia in particular is very committed to the notion of family and so while we see our lives in these very kind of particular sociological structures we miss out this incredible experience that we have of being consciousness in flesh and when sorry I'm getting all emotional now but when I when that really hit home to me I just thought well you know I, I want to talk I want to tell what it's like to live consciousness in flesh in this particular marital status or lack of it. That's, mm. that's what I want to say. And, um, and I know I, I've got this kind of curious belief, I, factoid I picked up somewhere, where I, I believe that, you know, if I have an experience, if any of us have an experience, at least 10% of the population have that experience. Now, from a publisher's perspective, I figured that might be a market. <laughs> but, but from a personal perspective, I thought if I just stick down to what my life is, what it's taught me, what I've learned along the way, if I just put that down in words, at least 10% of humans will connect with that. And in that action, there's a sort of um, a connecting that goes way beyond um, living in a house by yourself. You know, you, you're then connected to well, not only the house that I live in, but the place that I live in and the world that I live in. And that's what you get at the end of nine hours, that, that incredible epiphany that I had that night. And I'm not so sure it wasn't um, too much rosé, but um, it was an incredible epiphany of feeling like I was, um, I was the planet itself spinning around in space. Yeah. And so that's yeah. what nine hours meeting someone and having that kind of, uh, confluence because we're very different people you know there was no you could I could never use a metaphor uh, for Brendan and me I could never use a metaphor of coming together in, in any kind of union we're very opposite people so you know nine hours is about what it is and it is it's confluence it's that traveling beside two colors uh, like in rivers they have two different colors um, at the confluence confluence and um, it's uh, two those some rivers, the colours will travel side by side for some kilometres, and I felt like mm -hmm. that's kind of that's kind of what friendship is. You know, it's, it travels yes. side by side. Um, you can't meld or blend with the other person because that's something that's to do with marriage and family. Those kinds of unions, that kind of love, um, whereas this friendship is is more about confluence. I think. Yes. So yeah. the the other um, the other elements that were strong in the book for me were how you were able to feel uh, make note of place whether it was your home whether it was the river whether it was Perth 
that that place itself had a, a profound impact on on your psychological state and how how you were feeling and how you connected to to the wider world. Can you talk a bit more about that? Um, I think I think when you don't have a life that's filled with the everyday bu busyness of um, raising children, that you can be more connected with the earth and uh, and the and nature around you, even if that's urban, you know. Um, I think. And I think it's almost important to really debunk the idea that you can only be one with nature out there in the forest or on the beach. You know, I think, think uh, the challenge is to be at one with nature, you know, beneath your house and out the back and, you know, in the front and along the footpath and as you walk down the street with other people to look up and see the sky and feel the breeze on your skin. I think it's very important. For me, it's very important because it makes me feel like I belong to the universe. I mean, I belong to the planet and I belong to the universe and, and everything that's in it. It makes me think bigger than I am. Mm. And, um, and so, I, you know, I, dad, dad was a geologist, so I kind of had geology in my veins, really. But um, also it's geology that gives you the most remarkable words, I have to say, not only just about geology, but a, about relationship and about humanity you know, the word cleavage is a geological word. Uh, there's sorts of amazing, um, amazing things. That, and geography as well. I mean, conflux, which is a theme throughout the book, is a, a word about rivers and it's a word about water. And, you know, I just think there's... Uh, I, I, whenever I was stuck in writing this book, trying to get to a metaphor or something, I would go and have a look at a, an old geology book of dads or something because there would be a word that would kick me off, you know. Yeah. So I think, you know, so it's not just the words that go with it, of course, it's the incredible things that um, geology does. Mountain making, I mean, that's just beyond my capacity to think much about. It's so big. And, yeah. and the age of the earth is so so old this place and yet here we are worrying about whether i've had whether i've married and had children you know there's this sort of judgment about that and i'm thinking well you know but it's the, it is it is always a play between the the macro and the micro i think uh we talked a little yes. bit yesterday yes. about about the we talked about isolation going back to what's going on right yes. now for all of yes. us isolation and quarantine yes. and you've made some really interesting observations about what it might be like for people who are quarantined or in fact self-isolating and, and what what kind of an opportunity this might be for people right now based on your own experience of isolation mm. at times. Yeah I, I, I want to say right from the beginning I thought that it would be easy uh, for me, because I'm so familiar with, um, you know, being in my house on my own, living my life on my own, making my decisions for myself, by myself. So I must admit, you know, I, I, I understand that other people may find that very difficult um, in a situation where they may... Uh, there's a, I was thinking about, um, I think, a New South... No, Daniel Andrews has said, if, if you're in a relationship and you're living in two separate houses that you're not allowed to visit each other and I was thinking about uh, I don't know whether that's changed but I was thinking about that and thinking oh 
that's really going to confront people who are doing life together. They just happen to be in different houses because doing life together means that you share your decisions and your agonies and your happiness. Um, so I, I thought, you know, I thought about how difficult that would be for them. Um, I thought it was going to be easy for me. I was shocked that um, I I did panic buy. I swear. I'm sorry. There, I said it in public. Uh, but no, not toilet. I don't need that much. But uh, <laughs> I sort of sit there and wonder at how much toilet paper people use. But um, I did. When you live on your own, um, I don't know if other people are like this. I suppose, but I just have very little in my fridge um, because I don't want it to go off. And so I pretty much buy for one or two meals tops. Uh, I don't have a lot of backup stock in the cupboard well I do now and now that I've found out that I could still be able to go out I have no idea how I'm going to eat all this food but there <laughs> is, I've got all this food enough for a month um, so that was my panic buying so I was curious that I was really you know as worried and as panicked as everyone else even though I was calmly going and shopping um, 10 tins of tuna and then they put the sign up and said you can't you can only have two I thought I'm glad I got my 10. Um, but I also, I think um, the other thing that really hit me, which I didn't expect, was um, after I'd got all my shopping into my cupboards, I sat down on the couch to watch the news because that's what you do in uh, a crisis. And I, I realised, it kind of hit me, that I really wanted someone to share it with, that I, was, that I didn't have that constant person to mm. share it with. Mm. Uh, that really struck me. Um, and then also the other thing that struck me was that there was a hell of a lot of noise in the world. So lots of people contacting me to see how I was going, which was great, lovely. Um, the house next door was being renovated. Uh, I had a person out the front doing things to the path, good things to the path. And um, it just seemed to me like my whole solitude was completely crowded out. And uh, I found that very irritating. And I, I wondered if perhaps I was as irritated perhaps as everyone else because we're all adjusting to a change in life. And since the weekend, I've come back to my life as usual. The, my biggest problem at the moment is how I'm going to eat all the food. Um, so I'm slowly eating it. Uh, without having people over. So I, anyhow, that's the, that's the extent of my worry. What we were talking about yesterday was um, that we'd, I'd seen a story on 7.30 report, report um, about passengers. I, I think it's a Ruby Princess. I don't know, one of the ships. Uh, and a, a woman who had been a pianist um, on the ship was sending a message to 7.30 with her iPhone saying um, that she has a very, they're staying in the Intercontinental in Sydney, a, a fabulous, you know, I can't afford that hotel, lots of people can't, uh, great hotel. She was staying there saying the room was all fine, except that next door and down the hallway were people, couples, who were yelling and screaming and in agony at their isolation. And, um, and one woman was panicking and uh, another was wanting medicines. And at the end of the report, 7.30 said they got in touch with um, the Intercontinental who said everyone's having their needs met. And it, it just, it, I was really struck by the fact, oh, there was a, a, a third person, a couple on another floor, nowhere near screaming people. 
and uh, they were saying, we've got a very nice room, we're in gilded, we're gilded Oslo, gilded prison was the term, and uh, I think we'll be able to stay here for seven or eight or nine days, but I don't know about 14. And I thought, oh, okay, so this is, this is about being in solitude and, and an absolute inadequacy about how to do that. And what I, what I was thinking about with the, the people who are yelling and screaming was that the first thing that I know about getting through solitude is that you meet your demons. It's a bit like um, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. The first layers that you go through are the, in the bardos are the, are the demons that tempt you or try to make you come back to this world or do terrible things. I think that this is what happens in the very early stages of solitary confinement which is what they're experiencing quarantine is solitary confinement and it's imposed on them so they're not happy about doing it and when you're not happy and when you haven't chosen solitude what comes up for you are your own demons you know your fear your panic yeah. the idea that people aren't there helping you even though they are um, it's it's all that you have to get through and whether you can get through it is the big question um, yeah. That, that's, that's the big question. For me, um, it was incredibly difficult until I actually understood that this is an opportunity to embrace. It might be as frightening as hell. Well, it wasn't frightening as hell. It was hell and it was frightening. Um, but you can live through it. It's not going to kill you. These are your feelings. This is your panic. That, oh, that's what panic's like, you know. Um, this is fear. Uh, is it real that I'm not getting my medications or have I only given them five minutes to get it for me? You know, those sorts of things. You ask yourself those questions. I think it's terribly hard if, if you are in a state where your demons are at you uh, rather than what I felt the pianist was and the couple were, they were happy and calm. They could do that. They just didn't know if they could make the distance of it. Mm. And how... How does one find that sense of calm in all of that fear? Oh, I, I think it, it's, um, it has its course, you know. I think the m main thing to remember is that to see it as an experience that you can have, you can embrace or you can fight against it. And I'm not saying that easily. I feel like I sound like, you know, a hoodoo guru from somewhere. I'm oh, sorry, that's the name of the band, but you know what I mean. Um, I, I just think that it's the most difficult thing that you can ever do. But mm. given that there's an opportunity here and collectively to do it, it's a very different thing. You know, we're, we're not doing this on our own. We're being on our own together, um, which is very different to what I was experiencing. I was being on my own, quite literally on my own, because everybody else was busy doing something I wanted to do, which was really upsetting for me. They were my demons. But I think that um, if, if people can think about it as, as an opportunity, as, a, as a, a rough road to travel and see how you go with it, see, what, mm -hmm. see who you are at the end of it. And, I think that's, know, that's wonderful advice. Donna, I'm just oh. wondering, Chrissy, how much time we have. Oh, we're good. We're good for another five minutes or so, and then uh, if people want to start sending me through their questions, you can, of course. Uh, it's such a wonderful book, she I dare not name. I, I just loved it so much. There's so many little sort of minutes and minute detail of 
of your time. Uh, so continue on the conversation. Continue. Excellent, excellent. Um, well, I wondered. Um, I wanted to ask you, Donna, about agency. We talked a little bit about agency, and you talked about what a single person's agency is, and and whether you think you. I, I think you mentioned possibly this was in an interview that um, with age comes a sense of equanimity, that the calmness we're Anonymity. talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So can you talk a little <laughs> bit about that? Um, oh, I've just lost the thought. Um, what did you say before, equanimity? Yeah. Uh, we were talking about agency and, and oh, I think agency, you yeah. talked about meaning and belonging. Yeah. In the yeah, book. I think, um, you know, I think we live in a world, uh, well, you know, under a kind of philosophy that we, we really, really believe that we can make everything we want happen. And um, I, I, there are books around that, you know, you can, make, you can make what you want happen. It's actually not true because I've tried all the tricks, I can tell you, I'm ashamed to tell you that I've tried all the tricks to try and get a partner and um, that's just not happened. Um, what I found was that you can't change the life. You can't change life into what you want it to be, but you can respond to how it is. And I think... Sorry to interrupt you, can... you talked about a little bit about um, fate. In a way, you're a fatalist, yes? That you say that there are psychological yes, I am a fatalist. and sociological yeah. structures yeah. at play. Yeah. Yes, I think I am a fatalist and um, it's taken me ages to say that. That's more scary to say than saying you're a spinster, by the way. Um, but I am a fatalist. I think like, fate comes at you, uh, but your agency is, is in how you respond to it. And, um, you know, I failed a lot. I was very sad and sorry for myself a lot, you know. My life wasn't the way I wanted it to be. Everyone can relate to that because our lives are not the way we want it to be until I was able to think, well, actually, how can I be the best person I can be in the fate that has come my way? And that's when I found agency. Yeah. Mm. And how, how has feminism supported or not supported the spinsters <laughs> of the world? Well, um, feminism made me a spinster, if I can be so radical as to say that. But it made me a spinster because, it, you know, people like um, Anne Summers and Jermaine Greer and um, uh, Gloria Steinem et al always really were giving me the idea that I needed to choose very well, not just marry or not not marry for the sake of it. They gave me the idea that, it, so, you know, it's what, what a woman wants is the best for herself. So it makes some really good decisions along the way. And so all my good decisions led me here, um, led me to unhappiness. That's not what Socrates would have us think, but it did. And, um, and out of that unhappiness came something very interesting. But I think, you know, there's a difference between feminism and feminists. And there are a group of feminists that um, would... Uh, well, you know, who I was talking to about this experience who would dismiss me as, um, as not valuing the solitude that I had when my question was how do you live this much solitude, um, would dismiss me uh, saying, well, you know, why would you want a marriage like mine? Look, I had to leave him. He was an alcoholic. And I was thinking, well, um, 
That's why I haven't got married yet because I haven't, <laughs> haven't met someone who I would trust to get up in the middle of the night and help me with the kids, you know, those sorts of things. So um, I think it, there's a, a capacity um, for the hierarchy to occur. Uh, I think feminist, feminism and feminists are very interested in women with children and that's the discussion. And now we're hearing um, about women with grandchildren and all power to them. I think that's fabulous to talk about it. I'm not saying that we shouldn't. They're very important life experiences to talk about. But again, um, we don't get to talk about spinster and there are increasing numbers of women, uh, young women choosing not to couple and not to have children for lots of reasons. Some of them have got to do with being feminists, others have got to do with climate change and others have just got to do with money. <laughs> but mm. um, there's all these things. So I think that we, feminism needs to start looking at uh, women who don't have children. And it also needs to pull back and understand that the single life is not just about women. It yes. is also about men. And, uh, and we need to somehow find out how to find out about that story, discover about men's stories and men's experience and make some sense of that as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Donna. Um, it's, it's fascinating, uh, fascinating material. And I, I think, I think it, it certainly, you cover so much territory. You give us uh, a deep sense of a life lived well, a life lived with close attention to, to beauty and to literature. And I, I, I admire how you've used literature within the work and, and that's, that makes the book so, so very pleasurable. So I want to thank you so much um, for sharing the work with us tonight. And um, I think we can open it up to questions. Thank you. I open it up to questions. Uh, first of all, thank you so much, Renata. What a, what a treat to have you. Everyone, round of applause. Uh, but there are some questions here, Donna, for you. Uh, the first one is from Miriam Zollin. And she, hello, Miriam. And she has asked, during the process of writing this book, did you ever find anything out about yourself that surprised you? Mm. Donna, anything that you were surprised about? <laughs> or perhaps you don't want to share that. Um, I look, you know, I did well. No, well, um, I, I, I even when I pick up the uh, in many ways, I feel like it was channeled. You know, um, I don't want to sound too spiritual or um, strange, but I think there's something about the writing life that means that you you let it, you step aside and let it happen um, and then figure out what, what, what it's all about later. It's certainly that, that surprised me. The whole process of writing was the most surprising thing for me. Um, I, um, another thing that surprised me was that uh, when I got to the end of the book, I, um, I discovered that I had been holding on to all these memories all my life. And by getting them into the book, um, it, it, I had an incredible likeness and I realised that um, people uh, tell their stories, their memories to their children um, or to their partners and I've told it to the book. And that was an incredible everybody, Pardon? You've told it to all of us. Yes, <laughs> now you all know. 
carry them well. <laughs> uh, someone, uh, there's a gentleman here, lovely Bruce from from Perth, and he uh, has has obviously read your excellent book. And he wonders, did you ever get the urge to write it as a full-length work? Like some of those essays within your book are quite short. Some of them are even just a couple of paragraphs. Some of them are much longer. Did you ever get the urge to, to write it as one full-length essay or dialogue? Uh, um, no. <laughs> um, it's a short answer. It was... Um, I... I still am not sure that I could do a whole book, to be honest. Um, maybe I will one day. It feels like, you know, chapter books, uh, I'm not old enough for that yet. But I really uh, love the art of the essay and I love to be able to um, just deal with one issue. Um, it's a bit like a poem. You know, a poem is an image that's really condensed and a message that's really condensed into a short form. And I, I felt that with the essays. It was... they. Gave me the freedom to just think about one to think about my life around one particular issue like feminism for example or like prejudice or those sorts of things I really um, never thought about doing it as one big long thing because I felt like there were so many different um, themes that I was trying to tackle and that the best way to do that would be to do it as separate essays now Bruce I have to say he read the first version uh. <laughs> Way back when. <laughs> yes, thank you, Bruce. Uh, another question from the wonderful author, Tony Jordan. Uh, are you comfortable with the terms, Minister? Did you hear that? Donna? Certainly. When I got to the point where I realised that I was... Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah. Can you no, hear me? Yeah. Hello? Yeah. Yeah, we can hear you. We're good. When I um, when I was trying to uh, deal with the whole conglomerate that illness is, um, it was that when I it was at that time when I realised I was going to have to use the word spinster because in order to demonstrate what kind of life I was living, to use a word that would signify that, and I didn't like the word. It was easier to write it down than to say it, and and when. Um, we started uh, promoting this book and it started coming, people talking about it. I found it very, very hard to say the word. Um, and in fact, when people asked me what I was, what my book was about, I would show them the cover of the proof copy rather than actually say what it was about. I'd get them to read it. Um, but now as, as the process has gone on, I'm actually, you know, I'm quite happy about it. And I like it. And I think um, that we should learn to love the word spinster because all it means is an independent woman who's got a pocket of money and uh, can live life um, to its fullest. And so, you know, Sounds I think good. it's okay now. <laughs> uh, I've got another question from you from another amazing author, Chloe Higgins. Uh, can you, Donna, talk more about the process of writing and learning how to write the book from both a craft and a process of the point of view. So what was it um, like? Uh, my point of view... What did you use? You're breaking up a little bit, darling. There we go. Okay. Routine. Um, uh, Yes. Just, 
Are yeah, we can't me? meet yet. Just, we're just going to give you another minute. I don't know if everyone's oh, gone still. I have no idea. Yeah. What's oh, there we go. You're good. You're good to go. Okay. There we go. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah, so, um, my uh, process of writing is very um, uh, chaotic, I, I feel. Um, I write it every day, something. Uh, um, sometimes I can do it easily. Sometimes I can't. Um, when I uh, have really figured out what it is that I'm writing about, there's a moment where a sentence will come and that sentence is the beginning. Like It's almost like everything else starts to run out after that and I, I can see the whole plan of it. Um, but uh, I, I, I can't really say anything like... Um, I get up and go to my desk every day. I, I can't say, I know um, Chloe sets time aside for reading every day. Every time I read a book, I think of you, Chloe, having your time um, aside to read a book. Um, I don't. I read when a book's there and I need to read it. I write when it's there. I think this is, um, I'm just chaotic in a way. And at the moment, it's been very difficult to write because I've been so much more external in the world. But uh, I have to say, I got a sentence this morning that's just aching to come out and I can feel it growing within me. Another essay is coming. So th that's how I, how I work. If that's of any use, I really, I'm not sure that I would say to anyone, but I just... Thanks. Thanks. One other thing that I do when I'm finding it really difficult to express. Sorry? Uh, you're breaking up a little bit. So we might go to one more question and just give your computer a little time to catch up with us. Uh, this is from another author, actually, yeah. the lovely Susan Wyndham. And she's asked a much more sort of academic question, if you like. Do you see an environmental <laughs> advantage to people not coupling and having children in our poor, overpopulated world she says, perhaps, and I, I do agree with you here, perhaps spinsters can show us the way and be admired. Well, certainly I admire you, Don, and I'm sure everyone here in this, this chat room does. So that's a good starting point. Perhaps you're our role model from here on in. Uh, this might be the last question that, that we have time for. That's from Susan, yeah. It's Susan Windham. It really is. Hello, Susan. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would really hate to make a judgment about that. I think uh, why people have children um, is a mystery. And I don't mean that negatively. I think children come as a mystery in the same way as life comes as a mystery. Um, I think we do have to take care of the environment in ways we have never, ever begun to think about before and uh, probably should have thought about sooner. Um, I, of course, think spinsters uh, have lots of wisdom um, that we can offer people. And I think hopefully that's what this book will do. Um, we'll, we'll just turn the balance a bit so that people can um, think about what, what wisdom a spinster's life might hold uh, in a way uh, that the Indigenous people think about their elders and, and what wisdom elders um, have for this world. I think everybody has wisdom and brings it to the table, but the older you get, it seems to me, the more wisdom cl clutches onto you and comes out of your mouth. Uh, so, yeah, I think that. But I, I'm not. I'm so not sure uh, about... And I, I, to be honest, I haven't really thought about the ch child, obviously, about the child thing, but um, I do respect those who make a decision not 
to have it. I think that's a painful decision to make, um, not to have children. Uh, I feel for those who want children and don't have them, um, it's the way life goes, isn't it? Um, you know, I wanted something that I couldn't have as well. But I, I'd be really reluctant to say not having children's a, a, a thing we, you know, that we, I'd recommend for the, yeah, I know the answer really. Thank you so much, Donna. If you could read, uh, and I will show you afterwards, some of these comments, uh, you would probably weep right now. I feel very close to tears. What a lovely audience that we've had here, Donata and Donna, like really quite extraordinary. There are so many people uh, writing and saying how wonderful your words are and how uh, encouraging it is, but also just feeling really pleased to be together in the one space in this strange time that we find ourselves. Uh, it's just, uh, it's, it's really very, very nice to have all of you here. Uh, I do hope you join us at another readings event online quite soon. We have one next week. Uh, I'm so grateful to you, Donna, and I'm so grateful to you, Donata, and having you part of the readings team makes me very, very pleased. But I hope that all of you here tonight feel part of the readings team and uh, feel part of some sort of movement where we support our authors and the words that they say and the courage that they show in sharing their words. Uh, to you, Donna, you are a complete gift and I thank you on behalf of everyone here. Can we all give her a little wave of hands to show our gratitude? Thank you. And, thank uh, you. I'm so happy everyone came. It's very <laughs> You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to our e-news or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production and music for this episode was provided by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded.